to have you listening now to In the Studio with Michael Card. I'm Wayne Shepherd, and Michael sitting alongside. We have a kind of an interesting program here today. We always divide our program into commentary, creativity, and community, mm-hmm. and we have something special in each category today. And it's worked pretty well for about 15 years. <laughs> yeah. Why change it now? Yeah, huh? right. <laughs> Not going to change horses in midstream, as they say. <laughs> well, commentary-wise, you're going to uh, share some teaching that you did in Israel. Yeah, we, we take a group uh, every year, and uh, I think this this teaching was uh, basically beside the Sea of Galilee. So, I mean, it's kind of hard to mess up that, yeah. that setting, and we're going to look at uh, the Transfiguration. Right. Our creativity guest is our friend Ayanda Kamalo, who oh, will join yeah. us again, and he's yeah. always such a treat to talk to. We sort of vicariously, you know, absorb his enthusiasm about worship and, <laughs> and about, youth and youth. Yeah, <laughs> so it's great. Yeah, it's great to have great to have Ayanda come in. And then for our community guest, we've chosen Kevin Belmonte today, our yeah. friend who writes such great biographies, and we'll talk with Kevin about Maltby Babcock here today on the program. So, but we're going to start with a song that you've. Uh, sung in the studio for us. Carmen Christie, can you translate for us? Well, uh, it, it means hymn to Christ. It, as far as we know, it's the first hymn the church ever sang. Mm. Uh, we don't have the original music, so you know, so I made up I made up some. Uh, but it's Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Uh, the Carmen Christie, yeah. who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something he would grasp, but made himself nothing. And then after you sing, we'll hear this commentary from Israel on the Transfiguration. Here's Michael Card. Who being in very nature God Did not grasp equality with Him But made Himself nothing And took up a servant's nature Made in human likeness Found in appearance as man He suffered and self was obedient Even to death on a cross At Jesus' name every knee shall bow In heaven and in all the earth To the Father's glory each tongue cry Jesus is Lord At Jesus' name Every knee shall bow in heaven and in all the earth To the Father's glory each tongue cry Jesus is Lord Jesus is By God to the highest place And given the name as exalted Above every other name At Jesus' name every knee shall bow In heaven and in all the earth To the Father's glory each tongue cry Jesus is Lord At Jesus' name every knee shall bow In heaven and in all the earth To the Father's glory each tongue cry Jesus is Lord Jesus is Lord Let's talk a little bit about about the Transfiguration. Um, it's one of those stories that it, there are two stories that go together, and if you don't consider both of them, uh, you're going to miss you're going to miss something. I'm a big proponent of reading big blocks of scripture. Read fast. Read big blocks. You know, it's we think it's more spiritual met, to meditate on one verse. You know, and draw you know reams and reams of ideas. And I, I guess that's good if you if you got that kind of a mind, but I, 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 have, I have to digest big blocks. And so the two, the two passages that go together are Peter's confession and the transfiguration. They happen in the same place, you know, basically not just quite at the same time. 
So I want, I want to look at those in Mark uh, 8.27 is the first. Um, and the, the first point um, is that Peter's confession happens before the transfiguration. The transfiguration is not proof. Okay, Peter doesn't see the transfiguration and go, oh, you must be the Christ. You were just talking with Moses and Elijah, right? So the transfiguration is not proof. And I think Peter's confession sort of helps us, helps us see that. Uh, so this is uh, Mark 8, 27. Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. So that very area we were, we were the, uh, in today. And on the road, he asked the disciples, uh, who do people say that I am? That he's preparing them for the, the last block of his ministry, which is completely going to be him explaining what it means to be the Messiah. It's not really clear that he's the Messiah yet, but that's about to happen. And they answered John the Baptist, others Elijah, still other one of, the, one of the prophets. So basically they have no idea who he is. And even when they say Messiah, they don't know what Messiah means either. Messiah is a very fluid term, right? It, it means lots of different things. Um, so other people have all these different ideas. But he says, but you, he asks him, who do you say that I am? And Peter is the corporate spokesman for the 12. They have a corporate identity in him. He's not a big mouth who, who always, you know, sit, talks when he shouldn't talk. He's speaking for the disciples. And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. Uh, and he strictly warned them to, uh, not to tell anyone about him. In, in the other parallel passages, um, um, at this point, Jesus will also say to Peter, and you are Peter. Um, and what they're doing in, in, uh, in Peter's confession is Jesus and Peter are defining each other. When Jesus first looked at Peter in John 1, he said, you are Simon. You will be, future tense, you will be Peter. OK, now at the transfiguration, Jesus says, who do people say I am? Peter says, you're him. You're the Christ. Peter's helping, not helping Jesus define himself, but he's defining who Jesus is. And at that very moment, Jesus says to Peter, uh, and you, you are present tense. You are Peter. And friends do that. They help, they help define each other. OK, so that's, uh, that's something that happens. That's John 1. Um, uh, no, that's not John 1. John 1 is where he says, you are Simon and you will be Peter. Um, so then, then going to the transfiguration, there's, there's some discussion there in, in uh, Mark. And the transfiguration happens in 9-2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves to be alone. Now this is the three, right? One of the most deliberate things Jesus does is create community. And he, he creates three communities that he, we know of, the three, the 12, and the 70. And what they are is they're, sor they're sort of circles of intimacy. And so the three, and David has uh, the three. In 2 Samuel 23, there are these three mighty men that are kind of David's three guys. And I think that's where, where the three comes from. We know where the 12 comes from, right? And the 70 comes from, I think, that, that's the number of the elders. So they're, they're very deliberate numbers that he chooses. But on a practical stand, from a practical standpoint, think of it this way. How many people can you really know closely? I mean, you can ask them anything and they can ask you anything. I have two people like that in my life. Okay, uh, Three is kind of pushing it. But someone that you can know that intimately. So that's Jesus' intimate circle. Uh, next, next uh, circle out. How many people can you, you know their names, you know their kids' names, you know what's going on in their life. You can call them and they'll give, do you a favor almost any time. It's about 12. I mean, there are about 10 or 12 people in my life that I could call and they'll help me out. And then next cir circle of NFC out. How many people do you know their names, maybe know their kids' names? You know what I'm saying? The next circle of intimacy out is there may be 40 or 50 people like that that I, I know that much uh, about them and they know that much about me. So Jesus has these circles of, of intimacy and the three and, and, and Mark says uh, uh, he, he takes up, up, them up on the mountains to be alone. So they're there together. And we also know they're in the garden. Right. He takes them to the garden of Gethsemane to be with him. Uh, so these are really his intimates. And of the three, of course, Peter is the one that he's he's closest to. If Jesus has a best friend, it's Peter, clearly. There are 250 references to Peter in the New Testament. Uh, there are 12 references to John because everybody says, oh, well, John's the beloved. <laughs> no, if Jesus has a best friend, it's clearly Peter. 
So that mountainside that we were up, uh, up on, someplace on the, on the side of Hermon, the four of them go. He was transfigured in front of them and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white. And this is, I think this is Peter speaking, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Kind of a homespun uh, figure of speech. And the point is, they're getting to see Jesus as he, as he truly is. He's not transformed, he's transfigured. He's always this luminous person, but there's this sort of veil. And on the mountain, they get to see who he really is. And for the first time, I realized how important this is that they see uh, who Jesus truly is. Because from this point on, they're leaving for Jerusalem, like David said, and in ever increasing detail, he's going to tell them exactly what's going to happen to him. He's going to be bound. He's going to be spat upon. He's going to be crucified. And then he's going to be raised from the dead. And I think it's very important that the disciples understand that person on the cross was that person whose glory was seen, right? He's not this ordinary person. He's, uh, he's, he's, uh, he's the son of God. So I think that the, the, the revelation that happens at the transfiguration plugs right into the crucifixion. They needed to see him like this to know who he truly was. So, uh, and uh, Moses and Elijah appeared with him. Uh, Elijah who never died. The only two kind of saints in heaven, people that died and people that hadn't died. Elijah never died and Moses died and God buried him. And he's talking to Moses. David said this really interesting. He's talking to, Jesus is talking to Moses about his, Jesus, Exodus. Jesus is talking to Moses about his Exodus. I think that's pretty interesting. Now I think it's important to realize that the context of this passage is fear. Peter says what he says because he's afraid. And I'll go out on a limb here and say uh, Peter's statement in verse 5 should really be translated as a question. I think it's a question. I don't think it's a statement. And um, a lot of people would disagree with this, but let me, let me give you my case. So Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, is it good to, for us to be here? Because what's happened? They've just seen sort of the divinity of Jesus. It's beginning to dawn on them who he really is. And what happens if you see God? It's not good, right? Is it good to be here? Should we be seeing this? And so what he says is, let, let us build three shelters. That is to shelter us from this thing that could pinch, potentially kill us. We're going to build, the shelters are for Moses and Elijah and Jesus so that their glory doesn't, you know, potentially harm uh, uh, the three. So is it good for us to be, let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. Uh, and, and, this is, and, and this is Peter confessing this about himself, because you know the Gospel of Mark is Peter's testimony. Uh, because he did not know what to say. So what he said was almost certainly the wrong thing to say, right? He didn't know what he was saying. He's afraid. He's terrified uh, because they were terrified. So this isn't a, a, you know, a, a heartwarming thing. This is pure terror because uh, you know, he realized they might have they died. But just at that point a cloud appears and covers them. So they don't have to build tents. God covers them with the cloud to protect them. And a voice comes from the cloud that says, this is my uh, beloved son. Listen to him. Now, I've always taken that in a very general way, but for the first time uh, last night when I was looking at this, I realized what God is saying, you know, in, in, the, in the weeks to follow, you need to listen to him. He's going to tell you exactly what's going to happen to him, right? He's going to be bound. He's going to be spat upon. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be raised again uh, to life. And so for, for the first time specifically, I've seen this listen to him as uh, listen to, you know, what he's going to be telling you in the, in the, in the days and weeks to come. Suddenly uh, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus only. So it's sort of a, in a flash. Uh, it's gone. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And when Peter made his confession a few pages ago, Jesus said, don't tell anybody. Okay, and they see the transfiguration. Jesus says, don't tell anybody. And this has wrongly been called, uh, Wilhelm Vreda was a German theologian who called this the messianic secret. Jesus is keeping his messiahship a secret. And I don't think that's, that's it at all. I think he's, that's his way of protecting them. Because if they go around blabbing that Jesus is the Messiah, guess what's going to happen? The Romans are going to kill all of them. 
And they don't know what Messiah means yet anyway. They think Messiah uh, means glory. They think the Messiah perhaps is someone who's going to come and kill all the Romans instead of the kingdom. Believe me, none of them could ever have conceived that the Messiah was going to die for the Romans, right? Messiahs kill Romans. They don't die for the Romans. That makes absolutely no sense. And so, uh, like I said, in the days and weeks to come, he's going to He's going to try to reveal to them, explain to them exactly what's going to happen. And they're not going to understand. I don't think they understand until the spirit comes. Right. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead might mean. people love that song. That's an old love song. Love Crucified a Rose. That song is actually older than our guest. Oh, is that right? What year were you born? 86. Oh, yes. Oh, much, much oh, older. Man. <laughs> As they say, I have socks older. <laughs> well, I've got songs older than you, that's for sure. Wow. Ayanda Kamalo is with us again, uh, our friend who has agreed to come back to the studio. Let's talk about, can I have control here for a moment, please? Go ahead. Please. We would love that for you to have control. We're going to talk about songwriting. Oh, boy. You are going to talk about songwriting because I know absolutely nothing about it, but you two do. So, go. <laughs> because you know some, well, because you do it, does it mean you know something about it? It's such an intuitive thing. I don't know. I, well, I can't sit and say, okay, this is how you do it. It's okay. like prayer. This is how you pray. Yeah, I understand that. I don't know. But here's here's why I ask, because we got a note from Rob, one of our listeners, who said, Hi, Michael. Through the years, you've written a lot of songs from your studies of the Word. Mm-hmm. In one of your podcasts, can you talk about the process you go through, or process, as you say, right, mm-hmm. Ayanda? Yes. Uh, <laughs> for writing the lyrics. How do you go oh, about doing this? Rob wants to know. Mm-hmm. So okay. Rob has an inquisitive mind. I think Ayanda should go first. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, I think the, the biggest thing, just the first point is, Recognizing that the lyrics that we write have um, an eternal value to what we're putting out. So you can't just um, carelessly write lyric. Um, Because for some people, that's the revelation of who God is to them. So Mm -hmm. if it's theologically incorrect, that's the theology that they ground their faith on. Yeah. 
And the, mu- the music is going to t- sort of get that into their head, yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. Just so because it rhymes doesn't, doesn't mean, mean it's, it's theologically yeah. sound. Yeah. 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 So we we constantly filtering everything we write from a biblical perspective. Is this theologically sound? Is it Christocentric? Those are kind of the the, the, the filters we, we, we continue to need to be writing. Whether you're writing poetry mm-hmm. um, or writing lyric for a song that you're looking to share with yourself. Let's just start there, share with myself. We're always looking at whatever I'm writing, is it biblically based, mm-hmm. Christocentric and theologically sound. That's those good. are the filters. Those are three right. important filters. I'm going to come back to you in a moment. Yeah, yeah. I want to turn to Michael because mm-hmm. the question was directed to you. <laughs> How do you, I know you sometimes don't know how to express it, but how do you go about it? Well, all I can say is they kind of vague things. Uh, writing lyrics is like prayer. Mm. It's like praying. Yeah. Maybe it is a form of prayer. Yeah. Because you're listening. Um, and and it for me, it comes from you look at a text of Scripture and you get excited about something and you get so excited about it that you're willing to put yourself through the pain of writing a song to communicate it to someone else. Because mm. it's much easier just to tell somebody, yep. but to, to write it, three, compress it to three <laughs> minutes and make it rhyme and fit and, and be, you know, be pretty. Yep. Three minutes. Uh, I thought they were more like five and six minutes <laughs> now. And my songs are all about three minutes. <laughs> but, yeah, so much, uh, the most I can say is it's like, it's like prayer. List, it's listening. That's good. And I've got little picky things about that the that the music should say the same thing that the that the words are saying. I should be able to take the words away, and you should have a vague impression of what the song's about just from listening to the words. I think that's just craft or well crafted. Yeah. At the time of this conversation, you're about to finish writing a song with Pat Boone. <laughs> yeah. So do you do that with people? You 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 are more of a loner when you're no, writing. No, right, you? right. I get. You, we'll start something, and I'll go off and do my part. <laughs> right. Because I, I can't sit next to someone on a piano bench and throw out ideas. They, all my ideas sound so stupid to me that way. <laughs> but when I'm with myself and I can gauge them and see if it rhymes and see if it works, and I go, oh, okay, that works pretty well. Then I'll go back to you or whoever's writing the music or whatever, and then and then we, you know. So there is some collaboration. Oh, uh, yeah, I collaborate. Well, I, I write with a lot of people. I'm just never with them <laughs> when I do, when I do <laughs> it. Okay, TK, how about you? I'm, I'm, I, I can do both um, on my own. Um, but I also enjoy writing with people. Same room, whether it's a piano, guitar, guitar, or both. From scratch. From scratch. Wow. We can sit in a room and 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 lay out. Okay, this is what the the initial idea that uh-huh. God's revealed in our hearts. How can we work through the yeah. themes that and, come and out? And you of debate: that. Is this theologically correct? Is this the this, right thing to say? So, so sometimes people will throw out ideas. We we'll write it down, and then we'll go back and say: Is this theologically sound? Mm-hmm. So, we'll, so sometimes it's just throw out what sticks, and if it kind of works its way, great. Then we nitpick: okay. What is this communicating? Is this theologically sound? Because mm. it's coming from me, so I am interpreting something from my perspective that may be like: Oh, I, I understand that. That's theologically sound. Yeah. Everyone else is like, no, that's out of context. Right. Mm. So it's filtering, continue filtering my response to the revelation of who God is. I see it that way. The same way worship is. Mm-hmm. Do you ever wrestle with, you've completed a song, and a couple years later, maybe 10 years later, in Mike's case, <laughs> you <laughs> say, you know, I could, have, I could have said that better. Oh, gosh, all yes. the time. Yeah. 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 And I've got things wrong. I mean, there are things that it's too late. It's recorded, <laughs> and it's wrong. Yeah, try to. It's, you can't hardly examples. Live with I want examples. <laughs> okay, I wrote a kids' song uh, about Jesus falling asleep in the bow of the ship. It wasn't the bow; it was the stern. Oh, okay. And every time I well, think that of just oh, wrecks it for me. Well, well I, sweet, sweet Jesus, you you slept through the storm in the bow. Through lightning, through thunder, through thunder, you slumbered, but how? You know, it's a kid song. Yeah. And I think of all these poor little children. Children are led, so... Led astray. <laughs> and when they imagine that song, they imagine Jesus in the wrong place in the boat. And it's my fault. But Mr. Card said... <laughs> yeah. Well, I, 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 I didn't listen to the text. I didn't listen to the text. Huh. He's clearly in the back of the yeah. boat. He's not in the front. And, and those... Are, it's, and many of us write... Um, we write thousands of songs, and maybe one percent of all those songs everyone else gets to hear. Mm. So it's continually taking what God's given us, and sometimes it's just for me, and sometimes it's for my small community of friends, and sometimes God takes that song and says, "I'm taking it out of your hands." And how, how does He do that? 
any way he wants yeah. to. Yeah. Sometimes someone else will hear it, listen to it, and then play it, and then everyone else is like, whoa. Yeah. You know, that's an amazing song. So it and takes on a life of its own in a sense. Yes. yes. God yes. takes yeah. it and, and says, this is for the local global church. Mm-hmm. It's not just for you. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's the beautiful thing is writing for God to minister to me. Because God will then, if God chooses to share it with the world, let him do that. Yeah. Not me intentionally trying to push. Scheme. Yeah. Yeah. So much of songwriting is personal experience these days. Mm-hmm. How do you both feel about that? I don't care about your personal experience, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> is that cold? Am I being cold, Deanna? Um, okay. I, I think, I, I'll say this. I think if it's taken in the way of it being a testimony from a foundation, yes. But if it's just more of an emotional um, drive through the whole song and there's no reflection back to Christ in some way, mm-hmm. but that's the grounding of the whole conversation and needs to go back to Christ. Yes. And if it's not doing that, then I think we've lost the focus of why we're writing, if right. we're writing congregationally. If it's, I was blind and now I see. Yeah. 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 Okay, that's your experience. And yeah, right. I want to hear about that. Mm-hmm. but. Uh, one of my pet peeves is listen, and I don't want to let this degenerate into what bothers me. But um, what bothers me <laughs> is, when, <laughs> is when I listen to, I see the the lyrics up on the screen, and you see how many personal pronouns: I, oh, me, I do. You know, yeah. what do you do to me? I lift my hands. I do this, and after a while, you go, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe let's let's state that I'm going to lift my hands, but the song is. I don't know. Who cares yeah. well, if you live? I'm so glad that uh, Rob brought this up. In yes, the thank you. To thank us. you. Well, I'm glad Ayanda was here to give us a positive side and not the cranky old man side. Seriously, and you know you always have an invitation, Ayanda, oh, to come back you. anytime. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. We love to have you here. Yes. What a joy to have friends like this. Well, we're quickly coming to the halfway point of today's program. If you've been challenged by what you've heard so far, please share your comment or post a podcast review when you search for Michael Card on Facebook or Twitter. Or use the Contact Us section of our website at michaelcard.com. And while you're online, check out Michael's weekly blog. His posts offer perspectives which can remind you of the key truths centered in God's Word. Check out what's available when you visit us at michaelcard.com. Coming up, we'll welcome our good friend and author, Kevin Belmonte, as he shares what he's uncovered about the life and legacy of an overlooked Christian leader. Stay with us for that here in the studio with Michael Card. Join us next time for a classic edition of In the Studio with Michael Card. Joining us to discuss the impact of slavery on the African-American community is our good friend, the late Denny Denson. And we'll welcome back singer and songwriter Andrew Peterson to the Molin studio. Andrew will tell us about his music ministry and perform several songs. An hour of inspiring music and challenging study of God's Word. Invite others to join us at michaelcard.com. As we anticipate talking with Kevin Belmonte on the program in a moment, uh, Michael, you have a song you want to share with well, us right now. There's only one song that we can play before we talk to <laughs> and Kevin. I know what it is. About Maltby Babcock, yeah. who wrote the words to... This is my father's world. Right, so but had, I never knew that until you told me that. Well, I, I never knew that until I started kind of looking into the background of the song. And that's what drew me into Babcock. And then, then we talked Kevin yeah. into uh, an interest in Maltby Babcock. And now he's written a book. Maltby who? Maltby well, we'll Davenport Babcock. We'll find out when we talk with Kevin. But first, the song. Yeah. It started it all. This is my father's world. Which is what Babcock used to say to his wife. They lived along the Niagara River, and he would take walks in the morning, and he would say to his wife, I'm going to go and look at my father's world. Michael Card sings the song for us now. Father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings, and round me rings the music of the spheres. 
This is my Father's world I rest me in the thought Of rocks and trees Of skies and seas His hands the wonders wrought This is my Father's world The birds their carols raise the morning light, the lily white, declare their Maker's praise. This is my Father's world, He shines in all that's fair. In the rustling grass, I can hear Him pass, He speaks to me everywhere. This is my Father's world Oh, let me ne'er forget That though the wrong Seems oft so strong God is the ruler yet This is my Father's world Why should my heart be sad? He is just and kind, He is love defined, His grace all the hope that I have, His grace all the hope that I have. Michael, wasn't too long ago that we talked about that song here on the program. Remember that? Uh, I I do I do remember because uh, I talk about that song a lot it, because uh, you say it's one of your favorites. It, it is, and the person who wrote the words to that song is a person that has really captured my imagination. All right, so. We're going to talk about that person today because uh, when Kevin Belmonte was on with us here recently, uh, you brought that name up, the author of the song Maltby right. Babcock, right? Maltby Davenport Babcock, and that struck a chord with our guest Kevin Belmonte. So, can we take credit for getting you in into the subject of uh, Babcock? Oh, absolutely! Wow, cool. <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> Is it credit or blame? Uh, yes. <laughs> well, okay. Here, here's here, having turned sixty-two. Here's one of my new one of my new uh, truths. You're always looking for someone who's willing to do your homework for you, and that's what Kevin has done. He he launched into this research. Uh, and has uh, and has finished a biography on Maltby Babcock. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure to do it, and uh, very grateful to to lay the laurel of uh, praise at your feet, as it were. <laughs> wow, uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's been a, a marvelous journey, and uh, you know, biographers get very grateful for that as they go along. You know, the, the timely suggestion, the the word and season kind of thing, and uh, this has certainly been that and this book journey. Well, Michael, what did you know about Babcock? Because I know you love the song, but did you know much about the man? Well, I had read, uh, he, he wrote a book uh, called uh, Letters from Egypt and Palestine when he, he did a trip to Israel. I, I'd read that book, and I had become interested in his, his suicide. He, he was a victim of suicide. And, uh, but the, it, it, the information on him is, is not exactly easy to, to run down. It takes some digging, and that's... That's one of the things that Kevin is really good at as a biographer is finding these obscure – he's always sending me obscure pictures and obscure quotes that he's dug up. And uh, I would be interested in knowing, Kevin, what impact you know, spending that time with Babcock uh, had on you. Mm. Well, that's a, a big question. I'll try and uh, maybe isolate two or three things that, that stand out from my memory uh, as I researched and, uh, and wrote the book. I think, first of all, it is the gift of spending company with a great soul, mm. someone who loved the Lord, 
uh, sought to cultivate the many gifts that he had and use them to help others learn about the hope of heaven. That's one takeaway. Mm. But then I have one uh, that I'd like to thank my wife, Kelly, for. Um, she helps me. She's a fellow English major, and she's a wonderful writer in her own right. Uh, but uh, she and I talked quite a little bit about Maltby Babcock's story. And of course, it's the end of his story is touched by tragedy. And she said something that really stuck with me as uh, I spoke about that with her. And she said, you know, the end of his life wasn't the entirety of his life. Hmm. That's good. That, good, yeah. Isn't that something? Yes. It really set me back because, you know, when you hear about tragic circumstances bringing a close to someone's life, it, I think it can cast a pall, uh, sort of gray skies over the whole of someone's life. And we tend to forget that even though that, that ending of tragedy is there. It's important. It's it's wise to try and understand it and, t- and have lessons that we take away from it. There are so many other moments in a life, certainly a life like Malpy Babcock's, uh, that were full of joy, full of laughter, full of meaning, uh, f- uh, friends, fellowship, church settings, a whole host of experiences that weren't touched by those somber times. Uh, he was the first one to point to those somber times as a source, Michael, of what you call redemptive suffering. Mm-hmm. But having said that, um, I was very grateful for Kelly's insight that the, the end of his life was not the entirety of his life. Well, now, do you, do you have in mind uh, on one of those other occasions that, was, uh, that, that would be a better represent, representation of what his character was really like? I mean, you, and there must be a lot of stories that you have in your head. Hard to pick. Yeah, you know that <laughs> the book is runs to well over two hundred pages of manuscript. Mm. So let me see if I can uh, flip through the three by five cards and come <laughs> up with one for you. Um, you know, I, I think I look to Baltimore, which is where he spent the bulk of his pastoral ministry, mm-hmm. and a couple uh, more lighthearted moments stand out to me. Uh, the bicycle craze was in its first. Um, bloom at the end of the 19th century. People were getting on bicycles and, and riding them everywhere, and they weren't the kind of thing where you have the great big wheel in the front and a little tiny wheel in the back, and mm-hmm. you know it was dangerous to, to get up on one of those things. No, the bikes that I did some research on that because I wanted to find out, learning that Babcock was an athlete and he liked to ride a bicycle around Baltimore and, and make pastoral calls, uh, I found a picture of a bike that looks an awful lot like a 10-speed today, oh. so... Uh, he liked to do that, and it had uh, a really winsome way of opening uh, a window on his world from that time. What he did was uh, he'd go out and make pastoral calls, but if he'd see people he hadn't even met for the first time and they were on a bike, he'd sort of pull up alongside them and take a couple turns around the block and ask them what kind of bike they had and wow. sort of compare notes as a cyclist. And before long, he'd strike up a friendship, and they'd be off to the ballpark to see the Baltimore Orioles play baseball or that kind of thing. Wow. And so, you know, the phrase that uh, I remember from the research and the writing was that people always saw the bicycle by Malpy Babcock's door, and it was a way of saying that he was always ready to reach out a hand in friendship or to visit those in need. And the other instance that relates to the bike I can think of is, Mike, something you and I have talked about quite a little bit, which is the way that he came alongside students who were in need, yeah. either at Johns Hopkins or other schools there in Baltimore. And, of course, whenever people would see the bike at the front entrance of a door, they usually knew that he was there trying to come alongside young people who needed a, a guiding hand and perhaps some very practical assistance with finances, yeah, that I, kind of thing. I know he helped. He would help students buy books and out of his own pocket and that sort of thing. I, that's one of the stories I do remember about him. Yes. Not a, and I was uh, asked to talk about it a little bit the other day to a friend. They asked me what I was up to, what I was writing. And so I told them that it was really extraordinary. He had such a, cast a large shadow in a good way yeah. uh, there in Baltimore that when he left to go take a pastorate in New York City at Brick Presbyterian Church, uh, they, they sent a letter around that had all kinds of people sign, almost like a petition, yeah. that, you know, begging him not to leave. Yeah, from the from the entire city, not just people in his church, right? That's I, right. Right. <laughs> so the, the 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 city doesn't want him to leave. <laughs> That's impact because he's because he's such a godly man. Huh. It's had such a deep impact. Huh. 
Yeah. And yet his name is so lost in time. It's really, I'm really grateful, Kevin, that you're bringing it back to us. Uh, you've sent along a photo of Maltby Babcock. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, w- even when we say his name, we have an image that comes to our mind. But in reality, he was a pretty cool dude, wasn't he? I mean, he, he looked very, like a man's man. Very athletic. Yeah. Yes, you know, and that gets to another one of those vignettes that uh, open a window on his world. He was a fantastic athlete, not just a baseball player, but loved to swim, loved to play football. I found uh, a little description from a, a periodical in Japan, of all places, that said he loved, <laughs> he loved to play cricket, loved to uh, go deep-sea fishing, you know, that kind of thing. He just was really an outdoorsman in the way that we tend to think of someone like his contemporary, Teddy Roosevelt. Okay, I have to insert this here. That shows the kind of research that Kevin does. He found something in a journal in Probably Japan. obscure, yeah. He, yes, yeah, so my hat's off to you, brother. <laughs> And, and by the way, you had me at baseball, Kevin. I, I, I knew we couldn't have a conversation with Kevin without baseball coming into it. So, <laughs> Well, we're, uh, we're in hopes that the Cubs and the Red Sox will have better years next year, that's for sure. <laughs> yes, indeed. So uh, what, what drove this man? What, what was his spiritual life like? Oh, I think that really gets to the heart of his story. Uh, he grew up in a family of faith. Uh, both sides of his family were devout. Uh, They were academic in terms of their background and training. They were college presidents and uh, members of the family who'd served on boards of trustees for educational institutions. Uh, Very gifted, and that that heritage of faith was was there really from the beginning, I I guess you'd have to say, with him. Uh, It just was woven so deeply in who he was, and I think it comes out in his prose. Would you mind if I just read a little... A snippet of one of his quotes, I think it could explain it far better no, than I could. please do. This is a quote from him about communion, and I just uh, I really love the, the way that it, it's eloquent and deep and meaningful. So here it goes. We have this perpetual and unbroken feast in memory of our Lord. Why did he institute it? Because we so soon forget. Because we could forget even him. Mm. And in the unspeakable condescension of his love, he admitted that we might forget and gave us this tangible thing so that what might often be forgotten would not be always forgotten, that when we become too engrossed with things, we might be recalled to his love and his gift. Mm. Wish I could write like that. Well, (laughs) and and, and so important that we not simply remember this as the man who wrote the words to This Is My Father's World. But, uh, yeah, that, uh, and what's the phrase again? Uh, Unspeakable uh, condescension? That's not, that's not it. What was the, what was the phrase? Ah, here it is. The unspeakable condescension of his love. Yeah. (sighs) Yeah. And I actually read that in Beekner. Frederick Beekner used that phrase. So he must've gotten that from Babcock. So I think it's important his life as an introduction is important, but, uh, I think another thing that Kevin is working on is is getting Babcock's writings. Mm-hmm. Uh, aren't you working on a, collect, a collection so of this the is best? A separate book, is it? Yeah, you know, you, you write a biography, and and as is your want, you know, we've used the image of the three by five cards metaphorically. Uh, I set aside quotes as I go along, and uh, because Doctor Babcock had such an eloquent pen, or people who took down his sermons found that hit the spoken word, you know, things extemporaneously were so eloquent. Mm. There are really probably about five, six hundred pages from the different books that came out after his passing that are just studded with gems like the one that I shared with you. And so I've been trying to collect the best of them for what I hope will be sort of a through-the-year book or perhaps a devotional reading companion volume. Mm-hmm. Well, again, Kevin, I love your work because Without it, here's a name that would would be lost to me. You know, uh, Michael always said, well, this was written by a guy named Maltby Babcock, and I just sort of let that slide by. Who cares? Who was that man? Who cares? Yeah. And, and Kevin, you've really filled in the blanks for us here. Well, thank you. Yeah. No, it's, that, that's part of the, the blessing that comes with being a biographer. You know, you get to keep company with these great men and women from the past. You, you understand movements that guided and shaped their lives, and you feel like you've come upon a cache of buried treasure. And in my case, I just love to hand out shovels so that other people can take part. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, you, in a really, in a very real sense, you rescued him from history. Hmm. Well, I hope so. I mean, he certainly is deserving uh, of people's time and attention and their interest. I mean, he's very good company. Uh, p- people warm to him. Hmm. Uh, th- there was a, 
you know, I, I'm reticent to use the word magnetism, but there was a charisma about him that was just so natural and unforced. You know, people came away, even if they only spent just a few minutes in his company, they felt like they were the better for it. Mm, that's a quality, an unusual quality in men, isn't it? It uh, is. And when we read stories like this, biographies like this, we realize that we're part of a stream, a longer stream. Believers are part of a, of a heritage of people who have gone before us who believe the same yeah. thing we believe, which is always encouraging to me. Oh, I think so. I mean, the imagery of the cloud of witness comes to mind straight away. Yes, yes. But then I, I also think of the flow of history between eternity past and eternity to come, chapters being written in a book, and the people from the past are earlier chapters in the book, but then our time, our chapters come along, and sometimes those, those lines of the narrative, they intersect, and we get to spend time with those those great souls from the past, and somehow the story is renewed. You know, God's blessing is renewed on uh, moments from the past, people from the past. We carry that forward, and in an act of stewardship, just as we tell people about the great characters from the Bible, we can tell them about men and women from the past who still have a lot to teach us. And Kevin, I, I admire your tenacity in these things, too, because I don't know for a fact, but it doesn't seem like you're given a big royalty up front for writing this and doing all the research. How long does it take to research a life like this and produce a book the way you've done? Mm. Well, I suppose, to be honest, every journey is different. There are things that you can anticipate, some things not so much. Uh, but typically, and I'm very grateful for the common grace of technology, it's been a huge boon to my research. So many books that I'd have to visit rare book repositories or go and actually physically be present in different places where materials are kept. I don't have to do that so much anymore. Mm -hmm. So I'm able to be much more prolific and turn things around more quickly in terms of access to materials. So many things are online, books that Babcock wrote, books by people who knew him, articles, you know, from all places all over the globe. They're really sort of at your fingertips if you become skilled in searching. You know, you have to have that right search term to to bring things up. But it's been a huge boon in this case. uh, I think the book probably took about six months for a lot of the spade work to to make sure I had a good grasp of the materials. And then maybe toward the end of that time, two or three months toward the end of that time, uh, actual sitting down and writing. Because some of the first thoughts that come to you when you read something, sometimes they're the best thoughts. Mm. So you jot those down as you go, and then you actually sit down and you you block things out uh, with an outline. So yeah, I'd probably say six, seven months all told. Wow. Wow, that's a, an incredible commitment. Um, you must have other names rattling around in your head of people that you'd like to write about. Can you share any of those? Mm. Yeah, no, I've been reading of late about uh, the great uh, cricketer and missionary C.T. Studd. Oh, yeah. Hmm. And uh, his story fascinates me, you know, that the whole story of the Cambridge Seven, these famous athletes, these famous collegians, many of who came from wealth and privilege, that in the late 19th century, and Studd was the most famous because he was uh, probably one of the most gifted, if not the most gifted all-around cricket player in England at the time. Hmm. So his, he was a household name, and for him, along with these six other friends, to resolve to go to the mission field I had a huge impact on the student volunteer movement. And, of course, because his timeline overlaps with Malby Babcock, I mean, I haven't found a direct quotation from one of these two men about the other, but they certainly knew who they, each other were. Mm-hmm. So if I'm in a period of time, uh, you read around, and often the next lead for a biography comes from the research and the yeah. one you're doing at the time. Yeah, I heard David McCulloch say something about that. Uh, when he was doing um, Roosevelt, and that mm-hmm. led to the next book. Yeah, right. that makes sense. Is it fair to say that the problem with some of the biographies is there's too much stuff to read, and then with someone like Babcock, you have to dig a little deeper to find anything at all to read? Oh, Mike, that's a very perceptive yeah. thought. It, it's true. Um, sometimes when you, you counter a a person or a subject that's just a lot in the literature, as they say, the task is really winnowing it down. In Babcock's case, it was very much, as you described, where there is a lot of material out there, but it takes a lot of uh, rolling up your sleeves work to bring it all, uh, bring it all to light and then put it in chronological order. 
Um, that is often a great challenge for a biographer because a lot of the sources aren't really good about dates. Yeah. And so sometimes it's like taking a, I don't know, maybe a 5,000-word puzzle, piece puzzle, and, and <laughs> you sort of empty it out on the table, and then you go to look at the cover that's your reference point for how to put it all together, and, and there are pieces missing from the cover. So <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's quite a, a bit of detective work, I guess I'd have to say, sometimes. Mm, fascinates me. But... Uh, yeah, it's very rewarding. Yeah. Well, we are grateful for your friendship and for your work, yes. Kevin Belmonte. Uh, thank you, Kevin. We look forward to uh, seeing this this book, This Life of Maltby Babcock. Thanks for doing our homework for us, Kevin. <laughs> You're welcome. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Just a couple of moments left to us here today, Michael. And I love the variety of things we get to talk about on this yeah, podcast. Yeah, we've been all around the world in this program. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we started talking about uh, the Transfiguration, your teaching that was recorded yeah. in Israel. In Israel, right. Well, so Galilee. we did go around the world. Yes, we did. Uh, that was our commentary section. Then creativity, we talked with Ayanda about songwriting. Right, and he's from Africa, what so there's yeah. the delight. other side of there. And then Kevin Belmonte just now. He's Maine. Life. He's up in <laughs> yeah, Maine. Yeah, that's way away. Yeah. Uh, life of uh, Maltby Babcock. Yeah, and and what holds all of these together for me when I look at the at the themes just here on the sh- the sheet in front of me, this may sound odd, but in in one sense it's all about uh, washing feet and serving. Right, our, our songwriting is really just another way of washing the feet of uh, the brothers. When Kevin sp- speaks about uh, rescuing people from history and giving us these examples. Uh, that that are that are being lost. People like Babcock, who are so important uh, in terms of shaping, you know, shaping us as followers of Jesus. And then finally, you know, that 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 moment up in Caesarea Philippi, where the confession of Peter happens, and and then and then Jesus is transfigured before them. That sort of validates uh, that that confession. Uh, the transfiguration doesn't come first. It's not proof. You know, the confession comes first. Peter believes without seeing, and that's really important. But all of that, to me, comes under the guidelines of discipleship and, and washing feet and and knowing who Jesus is and telling the world about who he is and writing songs about him and celebrating people like Babcock and Kevin Belmonte yes, right. who, who do that and Ayanda who, who continues to do that. God is good. He's so worthy writing things about and doing radio programs for and singing to and living your life for it. Yes, thank you, Michael. Our prayer is that this hour will be used by God to stir us all to take new steps of faith as we put what we've learned into practice. Let us know your reaction to what we talked about. You can also interact with other listeners on Facebook or send us a note through the Contact Us feature at michaelcard.com. On our website, you'll find the links to our guests. You'll find Michael's books, music, and conference ministry designed to help you build on what you hear. For all of us on the team, I'm Wayne Shepard. Thanks for listening to In the Studio with Michael Card.